0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 38 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is John Yuan Kim. John is a Korean-American serial entrepreneur, musician, former hedge fund manager, and co-founder of Emesia, a thesis-driven venture capital firm with offices in the Bay Area and Singapore, where he works with founders on fighting the climate crisis and enhancing sustainability through behaviour change. But above all, he is also a child of God. And in this episode, we talked about his colourful childhood, of how he rebelled as a way of being accepted by society, his journey in building his various companies, including being a musician in the alley, receiving a platinum record for contributing to Grammy Award winner Brandy's album, and how he turned back to his faith, after hearing God's voice on stage, which took him on a journey from the States to Korea and finally, Singapore, where he established a venture capital firm called Amasia, We also touched on his vlogging journey as a VC and his thoughts on Clubhouse. But before we begin, if you've been enjoying the show and you want an easy way to support it, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's probably the best way to help others find the show and I would really appreciate it. Now are you ready? Let's go.
1: Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to
0: inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Your grandparents are from North Korea and your parents came to the States as immigrants to serve at the Department of Defense for years, but you didn't exactly have the easiest time growing up. And you have used the words to describe yourself as unacceptable, disrespected, and repulsive. And these are very unusual words to describe oneself as a child. And I wonder if you could share why that was so.
1: I grew up in the U.S. in a little town called Wayland, Massachusetts. It's 30 minutes outside of Boston. And it was a town with very few Asians. So I was very much a minority. Everybody in the town was either Irish or Italian. And all of their parents knew each other, and they're part of this very tight-knit community. They were all Catholic as well, as most Irish and most Italian folks are. And they went to one of two Catholic churches in the town. And I, being Korean American, we went to a Korean church that was 30 minutes outside of the town. So we were very much outside of the community. That meant that I wasn't invited to the parties. I didn't know what clothes were cool to wear when everyone was wearing jams. My mom was sewing my clothes. I, I just was very much an outsider and very much not accepted into the community and respected and affirmed and all that. So I wanted that really badly. I just wanted to be part of the gang and I really wasn't. And so by the time I was 10, I started to have suicidal thoughts. I just thinking like, Hey, you know, if I just went away and kill myself and disappeared, then they would be sorry that they were treating me that way. And they got bullied verbally, emotionally, and, and physically. So yeah, that was kind of the environment that I grew up in until I was basically a teenager.
0: And how did you transition from all that to a life of, I suppose you could say, quote unquote, crime, because you were like shoplifting and dealing with drugs. There was once you said you shoplifted CDs from Harvard Cook bookstore and then you later <laughs> sent a check to say you're sorry for that.
1: I mean, I think like most places, kids go through rebellion. But the funny thing about the states is when you go through a rebellion for not everyone but pretty much everyone like the broad swath of your peers the more you rebel the more accepted you are the more cool you are and so i started to rebel like i mean like everybody else did but uh, i just realized that hey all of a sudden everybody started to accept me more and respect me more and they went from saying things like oh you know john kim he's half woman half man like he's such a girl that sort of thing to Wow, that guy's got balls, man. He's willing to do stuff I'm not willing to do. And I thought, wow, this is really easy. So I just kind of doubled down on that strategy, head over heels into rebellion. And I was a very, very good kid. I mean, up until that point, I was super submissive and obedient and really like an ideal child in many ways, I think. But yeah, I went from that to stealing CDs, cars. I started doing a lot of partying, drinking for cigarettes, and then a lot of drugs, started dealing drugs actually bought eventually my first car with drug money, and then eventually my first house with drug money. So it wasn't just kind of selling to friends, it was a pretty decent sized operation, I guess. And yeah, what was really deep into this kind of rebellion. And for me, that was, you know, the reason for all that, again, was just to gain that affirmation and respect of people, not just the money, but I guess when you walk into a party, that age, let's say, let's go get some beers and find a place to hang out. So if you're the guy who makes the fake IDs, which I did, and then is is willing to drive without a license and pick up your friends, which I did, and you can go buy the alcohol, which I did, and find the drugs, which I did, then you became the life of the party, right? Everybody wanted to hang out with you. So all of a sudden, it was just this totally reverse dynamic. And I guess I found, in a way, what I had been searching for, or I thought I found what I'd been searching for my entire life.
0: Did you feel that you found that affirmation that was exactly what you're looking for?
1: Well, yeah, I did. But I got to say, it was a lot of ups and downs. So I always felt it was great to be liked. But then I kind of started to realize that people didn't really like me. They didn't like me for who I was, they liked me for what I could do for them. And I actually had multiple sort of episodes where I kind of lost faith in people in many ways. It sort of culminated in my senior year in college, I had applied early decision to UPenn. And Early decision means if you get in, then you have to go. You can't go somewhere else. So I got in, it was this program, it was an engineering and business program, which I really wanted to get into. It's called Jerome Fisher. And, and I got in and I was like, I, I need to go there anyway. And it's my ideal program. So I wasn't gonna apply anywhere else. But then I had a really, really bad case of senioritis. So I went from getting A's and B's to like D's and F's. I got a mail from Dean Stetson, Willis Stetson, I still remember his name, the Dean of Admissions at Penn saying, we just got a copy of your final transcript. Your admission to Penn has now been revoked. And sorry, you can't come here anymore. And I was just devastated because obviously any family, but especially Asian family and your whole life is geared towards going to college and your life is over. If you can't go to college and you would have to do a gap year. And then, of course, all the schools the next year would ask you why and tell them and then get your transcript. You know, so my life was over effectively. They did write in the letter. If you want, you can try and explain to us why you did so poorly. Pending that we, we might let you back in. So I wrote them a letter, and what I wrote them was that I had lost faith in humanity over the course of my senior year. And I kind of told the narrative, and it was all true, but I sort of slightly exaggerated it and made it sort of all culminated in my senior year, I guess you could say. But basically, I said, the only person I felt who could understand me was this Russian composer named Shostakovich. And Shostakovich is a guy, he had written an opera called Lady Macbeth of Minsk. Which was kind of like denigrating towards the Stalinist regime. And Stalin killed a bunch of his family, a bunch of his other family members died. And he said, the next piece that you write, it has to be glorifying the iron curtain. And if you don't, then I'm going to kill you, basically, is is kind of what he faced. So he wrote this Fifth Symphony, which we played in my orchestra at the New England Conservatory, my senior year. And on, on the surface, there's this like glorious, very triumphant, victorious themes throughout it. But then if you listen deeply, there's just a very, very, very deep and dark depressed melancholy. And that's what I felt like my life was because all of a sudden I was this popular kid. All of a sudden everyone wanted to hang out with me. I had everything that I could ever hope for, but really deep down, I realized like, Hey, these people actually don't really care about me. They just want to be able to hang out with somebody who can make them fake IDs and get drinks and drugs and pick them up with a car and yada, yada. And so- I developed a bit of a defense mechanism, I guess you could say, against people. And actually, my dad has a similar mechanism for slightly different reasons, but I'm kind of like had a lot of acquaintances, but very, very few kind of true deep friends for most of my life, I would say, actually. So did I achieve what I wanted? In a sense, yes, I was the life of the party. People wanted to hang out with me. People respected me, affirmed me, all that stuff. But I realized that that's a really double-edged sword. I wrote the letter. They got the letter. My mother called Dean Stetson and said, hey, we just wanted you to know that we read the letter as well and we support John and everything in there is true and so on. And and he said, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. We read his letter and we're very convinced he's going to be just fine here. So they let me back in. Hallelujah. (laughs) (laughs) Hallelujah. So I went there and it was more of the same. But the thing is, I didn't have to deal with the baggage of the past. I think when I got there, you know, I was a pretty likable guy, I guess. And again, for the cohort of people who liked the party and things like that, I was the life of the party in some senses. And another manifestation, I think, of all of that was music. Music has been something that's very central in my life. I got into playing in bands in high school as well. In college, I started a few bands, and one of them I ended up playing professionally with for some time, and we toured around the U.S. And at our peak, I think our largest show, we played for an audience of a few thousand people at this venue called The Electric Factory. So I think a lot of my motivation for playing music had to do with that same thread, which was when you have thousands of people or even like tens of people. My first shows were at this little tiny bar on Penn campus called Smoky Joe's. I think it fit like a hundred people or something. But when that place is packed and they're cheering for you, you feel like, wow, so accepted, so affirmed, so respected. You know, but what I realized is like with each greater shot of affirmation that you get from something like that, there's a lower low that comes afterwards. I was also a psychology minor. And so I kind of realized what's happening for people who are searching after things like money or acceptance, relationships, or sex or whatever these outside manifestations of things in the world. But really what's driving that behavior is a little squirt of dopamine or some neurotransmitter in your brain. So you get a little bit of it and you're like, it feels good. So you're like, oh, I want more of that. So then you know you go after that same behavior and the same behavior. But the thing is we're adaptive mechanisms. So in the sense that Arnold Schwarzenegger, when I was into thing at one point, I was reading his encyclopedia of bodybuilding, and he said something really interesting, which is if you put a five horsepower load on a three horsepower motor, it breaks, but if you put a five horsepower load on a three horsepower person, you know it becomes a five horsepower person. And so we're adaptive mechanism. That's, that's a beautiful thing because it means we can get stronger, we can learn, we can get smarter. But on the flip side, whatever shot of dopamine that you got the last time, let's say you earned a dollar and you get the squirt of dopamine, the next time if you earn a dollar. It's not going to be the same score of dopamine. You need to earn 50 or and then $2 and then $5 and so on. I just realized like, actually what I'm searching after is so meaningless. This thing that I'd wanted my whole life and I was kind of starting to get it. I was like, this is totally, totally pointless. And so I actually started to get really, really depressed in the midst of all of that. There was one show in particular where I was looking out at the crowd and I heard this voice, this voice said, come home. And I was kind of like looked around. I was like, what the heck is that? And I wasn't sure if anybody else had heard it or anything. And they hadn't. First of all, I was very confused. Cause like, what is home for me? I grew up in the Boston area. I moved to Philadelphia for, for school. By this point I was playing in a band full time. So we we're traveling around the country, literally living out of hotel rooms, very, very homeless. In a sense, my parents had moved away from Boston to Korea by that point. So I didn't have family in Boston anymore. And Korea was definitely not my home. Not only that, but the three reasons that I, blamed for getting bullied originally were the fact that I was Korean, because that's why I was not part of the community. The fact that I had a different faith, like I was a Protestant versus Catholic. I mean, they're pretty similar, but that's another reason why I was different from everybody. And that's why we went to this church that was so far away. And then the third thing was just that my parents, they were who they were, and they were immigrants, and they didn't know. And so I wanted nothing to do with Korea. I wanted nothing to do with my parents. I wanted nothing to do with my faith for a long time. But when I heard this voice I realized that home was not a physical place. It was a state of mind. And it was actually those three things, which I just thrown away for these 10 years when I went into that period of very deep rebellion. After that, I moved to Korea and I lived with my parents. I reconciled with them. i had really been very far from them for those years in between. I started learning the language. I started getting to know Korean folks, started making Korean friends, dating Korean girls. And then I eventually started working there and I started going to church again. And so I kind of slowly started to find my faith and, and reconcile with all of those elements of my past. You did
0: internships with IDG, which is the largest technology publisher in the the world. And that inspired you to start your first company, The Y Group. How did that happen?
1: Yeah, I just threw my resume up online. It was not nearly as common as it is now to throw your resume up online. It was much more campus recruiting through your own personal networks or whatever. And it ended up there was a guy named Stu Needles who... Found my resume and IDG. So as you mentioned, they're the largest tech publisher in the world. I think still today, at the time, they own fifty plus magazines: a MacWorld, PC World, CIO Magazine, so on. They do all the Dummies books, so like HTML for Dummies, Wine for Dummies, all that. They own all that stuff. They had published a number of articles across all of their magazines, talking about the parallel between and the relationship between computer science and other repetitive structural areas of thought, things like architecture or or math, recursive loops that go over and over again. And music is is one that's very, very common. Same thing. Music, if you think about it, it's all numbers. Frequencies is all numbers. Rhythm is all numbers. You loop certain parts of a piece over and over. Those are like for loops or while loops in computer programming. And so he had just read these series of articles. So he just went online and did this random search of who is in this database that has a music background and who is a freshman or whatever, sophomore in college and might be from around the area. And it ends up their headquarters is actually the next town over from where I grew up. It's not a big town. So then he found my resume, he pinged me and I ended up going in and and getting the internship and I reported to him and then directly to the CIO eventually. And it was amazing, amazing experience to do that. Very, I guess... Lucky or, you know, I think there was something divine maybe in that. It's it's happened in various threads of my career, I think. But in terms of the actual experience, because they had all these different CEOs at their subsidiaries, they wanted to be able to search a database saying, hey, what's ad revenue in my magazine or maybe across magazines, or let's slice it up by advertiser, what sector they're in or geography or all all these sorts of things. And that's just a database query. But until then, database queries were actually all taking place either offline or maybe in an intranet. It wasn't really possible through web until like right around that time. This is like 96, 97, I think. And so we were building that and I saw, this is really interesting technology to be able to search databases online. Until then, every website was kind of static. It was like the same thing every time you looked at it. I thought maybe this would be fun to use this to solve a pain point that I had. Again, I love music, so I'm always trying to figure out what cool music show is taking place. And I thought maybe you could search it by city or by genre or by band or by whatever. And uh, so I started to build this thing at night. I, I called some friends from school, from Penn, and then we started building it after the internship. And we came back to, to school and we continued to build it. And then we realized like, Hey, actually a lot of the bands and the venues and the so on that we want to list, they don't have their own website and they're willing to pay for it because they know there's a future. So they, they started asking us to make that. So we started doing some, this consulting work and hey, you know, it's good money. So we're like, we're happy to do that. And then we, we realized, well, we like live music events anyway. And then if we're, we have these relationships, why not just throw some parties? Cause we like the party anyway. So we did that. And then I went to our kind of an advisor. He's the guy who started the drumfisher Fisher M&T program that I went to. His name is uh, Bill Hamilton. And he's on the board of some very, very big companies and has advised numbers of startups as well. And he's, he just basically told me something which is now very obvious. And I think because of the internet, most entrepreneurs should know this, but you got to focus on one thing. You need to have a beachhead. You need to scale in one Specific area first, and then you can kind of layer on different products or different you know offerings. And so he told me that, and I said, "Oh, okay, we should probably split this thing up." So the e consulting business was earning the most money, immediate cash flow. I was like, "Oh, I think I'll just take that," and then I let some friends take the other two businesses. The the other one, the original idea, ended up becoming part of City Search, and so I think probably a much better ultimate outcome for those guys. Another lesson I think I learned out of that was it's really important to have a very long-term perspective instead of thinking with sort of short-term blinders on. But yeah, that's how that happened. And that's how we ended up starting the company.
0: It sounds like you were doing pretty well. So why did you decide to follow it after a couple of years and move on?
1: I guess I always kind of knew that there had to be something greater, like everything I just said about being accepted and so forth. I mean, I think in the undercurrent of that, I knew that there was something greater. I mean, I I grew up in this household where faith was very important. And so even though I kind of succumbed to my worldly desires and so forth, I kind of knew in my head that there's always got to be something more somehow. In this particular case, the mission for me was just about getting the music to the people and getting the people to the music. And then when it sort of lost that e-consulting you can make websites and systems for bands and venues and record labels and so forth. But if you really want to just do that, it doesn't make sense. So we ended up doing e-commerce, going to like much bigger companies and money was much better. Margins were much better. We could scale a team, all that, but it lost its music focus. And then somehow it just didn't feel right anymore. It wasn't about the original mission. So I sold my shares back to the partners and then I, I moved on from there. And you got to remember, we did take some time off school, but this was all kind of like during school for the most part.
0: So you end up going to Mark, then you went to the alley and you were there for three years. So how did you begin to build that rock band?
1: So I actually started the band before graduating and it was very organic. I mean, I, I don't want to say I started the band. It was a bunch of us that started together. We had a, d- a few different turns of, of folks, but we started doing some shows before graduating upon graduating, I wasn't ready to do it full-time. So I was an enterprise IT at Merck, a big pharmaceutical company. That was a great experience too. We were gigging on nights and weekends with a full-time job. And it just really wasn't sustainable. And so as we were seeing more and more traction with the band, we said, oh, let's take this full time. Let's go on tour, put out some records and so forth. And so we did that and we started the Ally, kept at it for a while and it was fun. It was a great experience. I think all of my bandmates are still playing music professionally, quite successfully, I would say. One is he's got a band. I think they were signed to, to Sony not that long ago, but he also does commercial music. that has been on the Super Bowl and all these things. So he's got a business doing that. Another... One of the bandmates, he started a band called Ye Sayer. They went on tour with Radiohead and Beck and a bunch of people. So played on The Tonight Show. And then there's another, our drummer, Mike, is in a couple bands, actually. I think he plays with the Disco Biscuits and Lotus. They're playing out stadiums around the US and stuff. So yeah, they've all kept with music. I'm very proud of all of them. And uh, yeah, it feels like several lifetimes ago, but it was a great experience.
0: I imagine one of your highlights was getting a platinum record for contributing to Brandeis album. How was that? What was the experience like?
1: It was great. So what happened was we were recording The Ally, our band, we were recording our album at this place called The Studio. It's a very original name, but it was kind of a JV between this guy named Larry Gold, who is actually a cellist originally. Jewish guy, long ponytail, trained classically, but he was just really in love with soul music. So like he, he was doing strings arrangements and producing and stuff for Motown from like the sixties all the way through. It was a JV between him and the Roots. We were there recording and they have on their wall, just like lined with platinum records. And so I was in a corner warming up before my session and this African-American gentleman, bigger guy comes over and he's kind of like checking me out and I see him out of the corner of my eye. And apparently before that, he had gone to my bass player and and my my bandmates basically. And and he said, oh, who that playing the violin? And they're like, oh yeah, that's John Johan Kimbo. He just came fresh out the boat from Korea. He don't speak any English and he was like, "No way, that's crazy." So he walked over and he was just kind of like checking me out and I saw him out of the corner of my eye and I turned around I was like, "Hey man, what's going on? I'm Kimbo." And I gave him like a big high five and he jumped. I've never seen such a big man jump so far. <laughs> he jumped so far back and he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah. My name is Rodney." And he's he's like, "You want to play in a record sometime?" I was like, "Yeah, I'll play in a record." "Am I going to get a credit?" He's like, "Yeah, you get a credit, don't worry." And then he walked away and one of the guys from the studio came up to me and said, like, "Hey, do you know who that is?" And I said, "No." He's like, "Rodney?" Yeah, that's Rodney Jerkins. He's like the top producer in the world right now. He's knocking himself out of number one, like every single number one single. He just finished with Michael Jackson, Aaliyah, Spice Girls, Britney Spears, like anybody, J-Lo, Will Smith, you can imagine he's been producing them. So he ended up pulling me into the Brandy record. It was great, man. Some people you just know when they're so on top of their craft. I mean, it was literally like I walked into the session and it was like there were like musical notes just oozing out of every pore of this man's body. I mean, it was crazy. You'd just be like, yeah, play play this. And then he'd just say something. He'd sing like a little lick, and then I'd, I'd play it back. And being classically trained, there's certain ways that scales are. And he would sing it, and I would think that he sang it in error, in a way. But then he'd be like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. He meant like this. And he intentionally is just a little bit outside the box. Not so much that it sounds crazy and distorted, but enough so it's like fresh. So everything new is like a new sound. And that's why he's just such an amazing producer. So that was uh, that experience. And I got to say, there were a couple misses in a way, too. So just before that, what had happened was Jay-Z was recording his Unplugged album. I'm a huge fan of Jay-Z. I mean, I love Brandy, don't get me wrong, but like Jay-Z for me is just like, I mean, there's no comparison. So he was recording in New York his Unplugged album and the Roots were doing the backup and Larry Gold was doing the string. So he's putting a quartet together. He had this raspy voice. I'd be like, hey, hey, Larry, can you pull me in that record? I'd love to get on that record. And he's like, yeah, yeah, Kimbo, I'll get you on that record. No problem. I was like, yeah, yeah, awesome, awesome. And then I didn't hear from the guy. What happened was apparently he was in New York when I pinged him. And he came back and said, oh, I'm so sorry, Kimbo, I forgot. I, and I was like, oh, my good, Larry, this is like my life's dream. I think would have killed myself to just be able to do this. I mean, I would have loved to play on that record. That would. But we got to be thankful for what happened. I guess if I can just share one more music story. From around that era so this was all like kind of when we were at school at penn and the other guy at penn who had a platinum record was this guy named john stevens and john stevens he played the piano and he sang an acapella group and he gigged around like solo here and there and i, I sang an acapella group too and i'd see him around and we did some shows together and things i'd see him and kind of just joke around and like yeah you ain't got no talent come on man and, and all this stuff and i mean he's very very talented but anyways he, he played on the miseducation of lauren hill a little bit of piano Lauren Hills from Fuji's, someone I admire a lot, love for love music. So that went platinum, won a Grammy. And then the next year I got to do this thing with Brandy. That went platinum, won a Grammy. So we are the two guys on campus with Platinum Records. And he graduated a year before me. He went to New York and then he was a consultant at BCG. But he still played music, kind of like me. He had his job, but he played music on nights and weekends in like dingy little bars in New York. And at one of these dingy little bars, his roommate from Penn, who is Kanye West's cousin brought kanye to his show and apparently kanye was like hey man what are you doing like consulting you should be playing music you're really good and he's like yeah well nobody wants to sign me so, so sign me he's like all right i'll sign you so he signed him and he brought him on tour with himself and usher and he changed his last name to legend so this is john legend we're talking about and i don't know he won like five grammys that year and became john legend so moral of the story is if i changed my last name to legend i would have been john legend because we're the two guys on we're the two johns on campus with platinum records no, I mean, like really, really talented, obviously, like really, really, really talented dude. And just, uh, yeah, so thankful to have had any brush in with him in, in a past life. But yeah, music's, uh, music's it's just so divine, right? It's an incredible way to get to know people uh, and to connect with something that's just so much greater than yourself.
0: It's just so interesting to me that these opportunities come almost by luck. So you just have to be at the right place with the right people and these all come together. I mean, like I grew up, you know, with classical and then I played like Hill song at church and I went to London and I joined an African-Caribbean church. These musicians had never had a single proper lesson before. So the chords they play are so yeah. out of this world. So it was a bit of an adjustment for me to figure out how to play with them. So did the you yeah, yeah. have that moment of adjustment and figure out where you were?
1: Yeah, I guess it was incremental in a sense. I started with violin when I was seven and then at nine, I picked up the saxophone. But it's like very simple saxophone you do in school. But you kind of get exposed a little bit to like jazz music and funk and these sorts of things. But really, I mean, it was very surface level. Really, when I was, I think in maybe eighth or ninth grade, fourteen-ish, I got really into Dave Matthews Band. And Dave Matthews Band, they had this electric violinist named Boyd Tinsley, who was incredible as a violinist, but just like really stylish. He's also African American, like very fiddler type of guy, like. Definitely didn't use classical technique. Let's just put it that way. But had so much soul. Uh, I ended up later actually getting sponsored by the same violin company that sponsors him. It's called Zeta. It was just such an honor for me. He got a much better deal. He got lots of free stuff. And I think I got a little discount or something. But that was my first foray to like, hey, wow, you can use the violin. And it was kind of bluegrass influenced rock and roll music, basically. So you could kind of use the violin in a more fiddle-esque type of way. And then there was this fiddle camp, actually. There's a guy named Mark O'Connor who was actually also sponsored by the same violin company. I think by the time he was nine, he grew up in bluegrass, like country music sort of scene. By the time he was nine or ten, he had won every single competition in that whole thing, like in the world or something. And so then he he kind of started going and conquering other genres one by one. So he did a classical album with Yo-Yo Ma, he did a jazz album with Wynton Marsalis, and just amazing guys. So he has this fiddle camp in Nashville, like it's a little bit outside Nashville, and so he's got all sorts of people coming from all around the world, and all the best teachers, so like the best jazz violinists you could think of, the best classical violinists you could think of, and bluegrass, like Irish, Celtic, and Nova Scotian, whatever. And so you just go going there and just jamming and learning all this different types of music. And they're like these improvisational, whatever circles, like just hoedowns basically that take place until way into the night. So I guess it was incremental. Like I'd learn, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. At school, there was a jazz improvisation class where they were very shocked. Guthrie Ramsey is the professor's name. He had never seen a, a violinist come for his jazz class, but yeah, I guess each time it was a little more exposure for me. And that's what I love. I love my orchestra conductor in high school. At New England Conservatory, the sort of the youth program, his his name was Benjamin Zander. Incredibly inspirational guy. One of the really big influences, I think, in my life and my thinking. But he he had this exercise one time. He basically said, like, we're about to go to a retreat. So we're about to get on a bus and then go across the Boston Harbor on a boat and then eventually go to this island and be there for three days doing stuff. And so he said, I want each of you and this trip going over there to do something that you wouldn't normally do. And from there, we're going to share about it. So we all take the trip and then we go there and we sit down in our positions in the orchestra. Uh, And he says, okay, so everyone share." So then somebody gets up and says, oh yeah, I punched somebody. I'm really not violent, but I actually punched somebody. And then said, I did a cartwheel. Like I'm really usually very so safe and like always buckling my seatbelt, but I actually did a cartwheel on the bus while it was moving. And then all these people are sharing like stuff that they never done before, but they did on this trip. And then he said, I just wanted to use this exercise to illustrate that we as people, we have a place where we stop. We have a boundary that things inside there are things that we do and things outside there are things that we don't do. And the process for us to become more ourselves is to expand that boundary out a little bit more. And that's what growth is really ultimately. And then he had us actually get up out of our seats and then move somewhere else. So the whole orchestra was mixed up in totally different places. And then we played the same piece that we've been playing for months and months and months But all of a sudden, like the flute was actually on the left now and the cellos had always been on the left, but it's actually in front of you now. You're experiencing the the same piece, but in a totally different way. And it becomes so so much more live and so much more real and experienced from a different perspective. But then when we got back together, we could understand it in a different way and bring that depth to it that we couldn't before having just experienced in a very unidimensional way before that. So I think that this process of expanding my boundary and also helping other people to expand that boundary is something that yeah, it's very kind of core to what I believe is I'm about. And I think the growth is all about.
0: Why do you decide to leave the alley? Since this was something that you clearly loved so much?
1: Yeah, I did. I loved it. But then that was sort of the peak of the rebellion years, in a sense, that was the peak of the dealing drugs, doing drugs. I mean, there were groupies, you know, traveling around, there's lots of highs and like, engineer highs, and then lots of crashes afterwards. And then yeah. So there was that moment where I heard, I think now I, I process it as God's voice saying, come home. And I realized like, yeah, this chasing the next squirt of dopamine is not really what my life is about. That's why I kind of decided to head back to my roots. And so that's why I left the band.
0: What's interesting for me. So you had that moment when you want to find yourself, I imagine most people wouldn't decide to go straight to Goldman Sachs, uh, really just yeah. working nonstop. I think you were what? going out, drinking into 3 a.m. and backing off at 7 a.m. I mean, that was an insane pace. So how did you end up in Goldman Sachs?
1: So actually, before Goldman, I went to a hedge fund in uh, Korea. And this is, again, like the zigzags. So when we were on tour in Chicago, we stayed with my friend and lighting director for the band's uncle. And I got along well with him. I had actually, I'll never forget, I-, I knocked on his door when we arrived at his house, we're still close friends and I think he's got five kids. And so the youngest one opened the, the door and she kind of looked up at me. I used to dress very eccentrically though. I had a pink fuzzy hat, furry jacket. I think it had feathers sticking out of it or something, leather, red bell bottoms and blue suede shoes. And so she just took one look at me and she's like, what the heck is this animal or whatever? <laughs> she just found me very curious. Anyway, so, so we go in and then we, we went up to our room upstairs and that happened to be where their toys are. So they knocked their door and I said, yeah, come in, come in. And they came in and they started playing with their dolls. So I went over to them and I, I took you know a Barbie doll and I took another Barbie doll and I started playing with them and and then they ran downstairs and they said, "Mommy, Daddy, Kimbo plays with dolls." And then they said, "They said, no, come on, stop bothering him. He's, he he's must be so tired. Let him rest." His, and they said, "No, no, he really likes it." So you know, I would send Christmas cards for many years that had like a stick figure with a pink hat and Kimbo plays with dolls as the tagline. Anyway, somehow I just got along with them and I decided to go home and, and get to Korea. So the uncle was telling his neighbor about me. And and I guess the neighbor said, he was the president of the hedge fund that had an, an office in Korea. And he said, oh, he sounds interesting. Tell him to give me a buzz if he wants to work. And I had thought that I would want to go and go to school, actually. Both my parents are professors. I think they would deny it now, but I think they've at least originally harbored a lot of hope that I would eventually become an academic of some sort, or at least get a PhD. I think their standards went down over the years, or at least get a master's, at least get an MBA. They've totally given up (laughs) at this point. But yeah, I think I said it's a very long shot, but I'm going to shoot for an honorary doctorate. So it's not completely over at this point. So Yeah, I guess there was this stop in between going to the fund in Korea. And so I was trading derivatives there very randomly. And so I did that for four years. And then this position opened up at Goldman. And then I moved there and it was trading something actually very different, commodities. And I did that for five years. Yeah, and that's what brought me to Singapore. I like to say I came to Singapore for work. I married a Singaporean, so I stayed for love. We have three kids and now I'm stuck, (laughs) but it's okay. There are worse places in the world to be stuck.
0: It must have been very interesting learning to operate in Asia because it's quite relationship driven compared to the West. How was it like transitioning to that kind of environment?
1: Yeah, I think I was very blessed. God is good. He didn't throw me in right away. My first role was at this fund in Korea, but they say Confucianism was invented in China, but it's still strongest today in Korea. Because, I mean, man, it, it's very hierarchical, top-down. And there's some benefits to that, don't get me wrong. But if you're coming from a Western perspective, it's very difficult to, to get involved, to go work for Samsung if you went to, grew up in, in the U.S. So this fund, it was actually Chicago-based. And it was a small office. There were like five of us. And I was the first person of Korean blood in the office. So I worked with a bunch of Caucasian guys. And our broker was Korean. I became the default Korean guy. My Korean wasn't great, but I could speak some Korean. So then they, I became the guy to talk with the brokers and stuff like that. And so it, it was good. It was a good ease into sort of culture to experience a little bit, but not be totally inundated with it, I suppose. Goldman in Singapore, some Singapore, they say asia light. It's much easier. It's much more Western in many senses than Korea. It was fine. It was quite doable. And same thing with Mercuria. And then we set up our own firm after that. So it took some getting used to, but I think all in all, it was a relatively light transition compared to what it could have been.
0: What sparked your decision to start your own venture capital?
1: It was just another one of these seemingly random things because, okay, what happened was in my last three roles at this fund in Korea at Goldman and at the Swiss firm called Mercuria, I was predominantly trading. So that means listed stuff mostly, but I got pulled into private deals, private equity basically. And I found that quite stimulating. It's a very just different part of the universe, the investment universe. And rather than sitting there and sort of like playing a video game on a screen, which is what trading is, and that's very fun. Don't get me wrong. I like people as well. And so PE is much more relational. Like you have to go, the sourcing of the deal means like meeting a lot of people. And actually as you get earlier stage, more towards venture, that's even more about people. So I just found that quite interesting. And I got pulled into a few deals, saw a little bit of that side of the world. And there was at the end of my time at Mercuria, one transaction I was working on, we were selling 50% of a subsidiary that had some oil terminals in Europe. Eventually, we sold it to a Chinese SOE, but one of the bidders on the project was a Korean conglomerate. So my chairman and CEO for Mercuria, who were European guys, I said, hey, you're Korean. Can you come and just meet the chairman of this conglomerate because you're Korean, he's Korean, and just do whatever you Koreans do when you conduct business, which basically means drink a lot of alcohol and be really silly. And so we did that. I went over. It was actually in Istanbul. There was a World Economic Forum event there. It was the worst meeting ever. We were late. He was so upset. But then afterwards, we invited him to my chairman's boat to have dinner and a couple glasses of wine. Like a lot of people, but especially a lot of Korean men, I think after a couple of drinks, he became very friendly from being very upset before. And then it ends up, he knew my dad, not very well. They're acquaintances. They went to the same grad school and kind of same alumni association. And this guy actually, the chairman used to teach for a year at the same university as my dad. So the next thing you know, he's like putting his arm around me and he's like, Hey, you know, let's look at some other stuff we can work on together. And I said, Oh, well, I know that you invest in funds. I've always thought about starting a fund. Like what do you look for? And he said, I was involved in a hedge fund that blew up. I can't do that anymore. But if you have any ideas in private equity, like private space, I can take a look at that. And he has uh, some tech interests, telco and things. And so so, okay, interesting. Well, let me come back to you. I started working with this team and I realized like, hey, my entrepreneurial tech sort of roots and my investment experience, maybe there's a way that I can marry these two things together. So I went out and I started to just talk to some mentors of mine who were in the space broadly. And one of them I had met through Penn actually, and he had been in the business for a long time. I went to him more as like a hey, can you be an advisor? Just give me some advice and Maybe there's something I can do for you at some point, but he's 11 years my senior from Penn. And anyways, we met a few times in the course of talking through the ideas, he kind of said, Hey, I've been thinking about similar things. Maybe we can work together on this. And then he actually ended up suggesting that we partner up. And so That's how the firm started. We kind of ate our own dog food. A lot of entrepreneurs, the best practice these days is to like start with an MVP, minimum viable product, do something very, very small, just test it out with a very small number of people instead of like trying to build something for a year. So we did that. We just did some angel investing, something we could do without setting up a whole fund and a firm and hiring people and all that stuff. So we did some angel investing just to test our our hypothesis which was really around cross-border at the time and globalization. And we were very surprised that we were getting into really interesting companies. So then we set up a small fund and we started doing some SPVs and we have scaled through the years. And now it's actually, we realized that we're riding on a lot of the sectors that we're investing, they're riding on the tailwinds of globalization, but they're also helping solve some biggest problems caused by globalization. So we double-clicked on climate change. It's one of those. Our thesis currently is about sustainability. So very much focused on that
0: unlike a lot of VCs, you're also very faith driven. And the reason you got into MSA was also because God gave you a picture.
1: Yeah. So that was more like, if I'm remembering what you're referring to, I don't get pictures a lot, first of all, right? So the stories that I'm telling here, I heard God's voice and it sounded audible. And I looked around, <laughs> and it's like, that doesn't happen a lot, right? Okay. I'm not a very visual person. It's starting to happen a little bit more recently, actually, that I'm getting sort of these pictures, but especially at the time, it was not frequent at all. So anyways, I'm sitting here, we had started the company, and I just really wanted it to be successful. I wanted so badly for it to do well. And I knew going into this thing that it was going to be hard because entrepreneurship is hard. I'd tried that before. I was just at a phase in my career, like I had young kids, newly married, family to look after. And so I just really, really wanted it to do well. So I I was praying, and I kind of asked God, like, hey, God, look, I'll do anything, man. Like you want me to go anywhere, meet anyone, do anything. Like I will do it. Just please, please, please. Can you bless my business? Like I would just love for you to bless this business. And it's about you. Like I want to make money for the business to be successful, but that's not for me to go be a baller and stuff like that. I just want to do the right thing. And he gave me this picture. I mean, first he was kind of like pat on the back. Okay, fine. He gave me a picture of my son. Kian is his name, the first one. And he said, you know, imagine Kian is older, and he wants to start a company. And by the way, he has started now a company. So it's become kind of kind of true. Yeah. Imagine he comes to you and says, Appa, I've started this company. I want you to bless the company. I want you to invest in the company. I want you to help me strategize about the company. I want you to open up your Rolodex for all your friends to become customers, investors, whatever of the company. I just want you to do everything, just bless the company so it can do well and be successful. Can you do that for me? And God was kind of like, would you want that for your son? Of course, of course I want that. I want him to be successful without a doubt, of course. And then he kind of like, gave me two scenarios. And he said, okay, so imagine Kian comes to you and it says like, I want to be successful. Appa, open up your Rolodex, give me all the money because yo, I'm going to buy a company Ferrari and I'm going to go out and I'm going to be the man and we're going to get private jets and popping bottles of Dom Perignon and all these girls are going to be all over me and all this stuff. And that's going to be amazing. We're going to love, it's going to be awesome. Or imagine he comes to you and he says, Appa, I want you to bless my company. And uh, I know that I don't know what I'm doing. And I know you know what you're doing a lot more than I do. So I'm going to come back to you every single day. I actually want to build a company together with you. I mean, if you're not too busy, I'd love to just have you involved in the company. I'm going to come back and we're going to do it together. We're going to spend a lot of time together doing this. I'm going to get your advice. I know you're good at this. So I have absolute faith that it's going to be successful. So when it's successful, I want to use the resources and the success that we get to make a positive impact on the world and do good things. Like maybe we donate a building to some university and put the family name on it or whatever. Like, let's get back with this. And so God kind of asked me like, in which of those scenarios would you want your son to be successful? And I said, kind of both. He's like, yeah, but in the first scenario, you just be a little bit cautious about blessing him because in a way, if you bless him, it could kill him. If he has the right heart, it can actually help. But if he has the wrong heart and the wrong values and the wrong priorities, then blessing him can actually hurt him. On the flip side, if he's like the second version of Kian and he comes and he asks you all these things, like, wouldn't you do everything in your possibility, in your power to make sure that he's got all the resources to be successful? And if he believes in you, and if you're good at this and if you're influential and whatever, like, he will be successful. And how much more so if you think about your father in heaven, like, I want this company to be successful even more than you want it to be successful. It is something that is in my heart, it is the deepest desire of my heart, more than even you want it. But if you come to me with this attitude of like, yeah, I know what I'm doing, just give me the money and I'm going to bounce, then I still want you to be successful, but I'm just going to be worried about you because it can kill you literally. But if you come back to me with that humble heart and just saying like, Hey, I don't know what I'm doing, but God, I want to hang out with you. And I want you to do this together because you are all powerful. You're omniscient, you're omnipresent. You know, like every business belongs to you. like You can snap a finger and have 10 unicorns appear out of nowhere. And if you have that kind of faith and that kind of attitude and that kind of heart to spend time with me, to give back to the kingdom, to do things for the name of the father, all these things, then of course, like I'm going to bless you more than you can even begin to imagine. I know now what I need to do. It's very clear the blueprint ahead of me, but I'm a person. So people sometimes old habits die hard. So like I said, that 10 year old kid sometimes comes out and I just got to cut it and I'm getting better at it, but I got to say, it's just so categorical. There's this whole area of Christianity called prosperity gospel, where people say like, If you give money to the church, like 1-800 blessings, like give the pastor tons of money and then God will bless you. He's going to give you vacations and he's going to give you houses. Like that's fundamentally flawed theology. God is not a vending machine, but I will say that God wants to bless you. I mean, what loving father doesn't want to bless their kids, but it's not a transaction. It's just more about getting your heart into the right place where you don't care about. So at this point, I actually don't care if he blesses me. Really, honestly, I'm just like, I just want to hang out with you. When I hang out with God every day, it's very easy to get into motions of like, okay, did I read my Bible for however many minutes and so on and so forth. But I realized God's everywhere, right? So we're always in his presence. But there are moments where you experience his like kind of manifest presence where it's, he's like actually real and he touches your heart. There are different things that happen to different people. But for me, the first thing that happens when I really feel God is in the room and I feel like I just know so deeply that I'm loved and he'll go to any extent to come after me and just to bless me and to hold me in his arms, I cry. That's the first thing that happens to me. And it happened a couple of times at retreats, these moments, these very special moments when you go away to church and whatever. But then I started realizing, hey, it can happen normally too. If you just really press in, I mean, the, it's very obvious in scriptures is like, come near to me and, and I'll come near to you. And so I started optimizing instead of checking the box and say, Hey, I read my Bible for however many minutes. I started checking, like, did I cry today? And it's not about crying because you can go take acting classes and, and learn how to cry obviously, but it's more like, did I really meet God today to the point where I felt it in the bottom of my soul that he loves me. And I'll tell you when I get that feeling, I've done every single type of drug that you can imagine. I've done cocaine. I've been heroin, lots of weed, of course, opium, DMT, mushrooms, like acid, everything you can imagine. I'll tell you, when you feel the presence of God, it is a thousand times better than any of those things like combined, right? So that's kind of what I'm after every day. And when you get that, you don't care about the deal getting done. You actually don't really care about the business, but that's when God knows your heart is in the right place and he can bless your business all the more because it's not about the business, it's about God. So yeah, he's been teaching me that. And it's very, very obvious to me, if I lose focus, and I start to focus on the deal, instead of like hanging out with God and being close to him, then the deal falls apart. The minute I I switch back, like it comes back together, It like literally gets raised from the dead sort of thing. Like it's happened so many times. It's so crazy. So now I I know in my head, and I'm getting there, like I'm much closer than I was, you know, it's always a journey, I guess, but it's just so obvious what's important.
0: At the very start, at least with the fact that you were so onto your faith, something that caused some tension because Ramanan, your partner, yeah. is a very firm atheist. So he's probably looking, yeah. at you thinking, what on earth is John going on about?
1: <laughs> yeah. So after I heard God's voice and whatever, and I went to Korea, I started going to church again, but it was a very slow, gradual journey of coming back into a relationship with him. There's been a huge shift for me over the last seven years, partly starting the company and then partly also going to this new church. It's called Solomon's Porch, but the one thing that this church does is they fast for the first 21 days of every year. You're supposed to pray and listen to God and see what he tells you to fast from. And in general, you should fast from something that's hard to give up, because when you give up something that's hard to give up, you're basically saying, God, you're more important than this thing that I really value. That's how important you are. And with that space that you create by giving up that thing you can feel the presence of god the hunger to have more of god's presence so our church started in hong kong i think it's like 15 20 years ago now when they first started fasting people thought they were crazy like what this is so unhealthy and also recently there's been all this research coming out about how fasting is very healthy for you so anyways the first fast I was sitting there and trying to figure out what I should fast from. And kind of like the default quote unquote at, at the church is most people don't eat for 21 days, but then they'll do like some sort of liquid diet. they will have some soups or some juices, that sort of thing. Like pregnant women might fast from social media. The hardest core thing that I heard about was one of our church members in Hong Kong actually fasted for 40 days, no food, no juice, no soup, just water for 40 days. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. So anyways, I'm sitting here and I'm trying to figure out what to fast from. And I I don't really value food, to be honest. I think it comes from, again, that desire to be accepted and all that stuff. Like it drove me to be very goal-oriented. And that leads to this mindset of deferring pleasure to get more pleasure later. And so I have much more of like an investment for later mindset rather than having pleasure now sort of mindset. And so for me, food is kind of a source of calories. My college roommates used to laugh at me because they would find remnants of like a hamburger on the toilet seat because I've been sitting there taking a poo and eating at the same time because it was just a waste of time to go sit down and eat. I used to wrestle as well in high school. And so we would not eat and exercise very, very intensely to drop weight to make our weight class. So I thought to myself, okay, I should probably not eat, but I don't know if I'm going to feel that in the same way as other people. And so what else can I fast from? What would be the most difficult thing for me fast from. I sat there, I prayed about it. I thought about it. You know, I went on a walk in our neighborhood and I remember sort of like looking up and it kind of just dawned on me. Actually, the hardest thing for me to give up is work. And again, it's tied into that fact that I got bullied and I want to prove myself and be accepted and affirmed. And that's how it manifests these days. So I ran back in the house and I ran upstairs and I burst into the room and I said, Elaine, Elaine, this is my wife. I know what I need to fast from. I need to fast from work. And she just looks at me with this quizzical look. She loves food, by the way, she's much more of a pleasure sort of oriented person. She looks at me, and she's like, that's not a fast, that's called a vacation. <laughs> so I ended up doing this, I couldn't fast the whole day, but I ended up taking the whole morning off and into the afternoon, and I'd go to McRitchie Reservoir here in Singapore, and I just like hang out with God. And I, and I felt like I needed to tell Ramanan, my business partner this. And so... And we had this thing where we had done a lot of small deals together. And then we had this thing that was 18 times larger than our largest deal that that fell apart around like November-ish. In December, we're like reeling from that. And we started to get going on this other deal, which is also 18 times as big as that, you know, as anything we'd ever done. Same size, if anything, like even more coveted, the sort of like co-investors that were involved and the, the scale of the entrepreneur and so forth. And so here we're in this like very, very critical moment in our firm's development And then I just told my partners like, hey, I'm going to stop working for half the day. And he's like, what? And and, and I'm going to stop eating. He's like, what are you talking about? This makes absolutely no sense. You're not going to have any energy. So like the the time that you are working, you're going to be completely unproductive and you're not going to be working for much time. Like this is so crucial that we had this thing fall apart just now. And then how how are you going to do this in this moment? And I said, well, look, I acknowledge that you believe something very different from what I believe. But in terms of what I believe, you know, if you look at the scriptures in the Old Testament, the, the, the Israelites, they didn't fast when it was convenient. They fasted when they're about to go into battle, right? Because that's when it's important to demonstrate that it's really not their own strength, but God's strengths. It's God's strength that brings them the victory. So if anything, like this is our battle, man, this is we're, we're about to go into battle. And this is the most crucial time. And we should be bulking up and eating big fat steak dinners to get ourselves ready for battle. But I think I'm going to fast from work. And he's like, well, and he just he couldn't understand it. And we went back and forth and he resisted very, very fiercely. But eventually he saw I wasn't going to give in. So he kind of just said, okay, fine. I don't understand it. I don't agree with it, but shoot. Well, okay. I respect that we have a difference of opinion and, and you can do that.
0: Your company, if it didn't work out this deal, it could fall.
1: The whole thing could have been over. Yeah, we were were reeling at that point. And yeah, you need to start doing some bigger deals for, for things to make sense economically. We've been investing into the business for a while. So it's existential threat. So I go forth and I fast. I mean, this is one of those stories like where for that 21 days I would go and then I would hang out with God. But at the beginning, to be honest, I tried to do 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes a day of quiet time sort of thing. Like maybe an hour if I was like really, really free or something, but to sit there for like four or five hours a day was totally mind blowing for me. And I went and so I'd sit there for an hour and kind of be like, okay, and I'd sing some songs and then read the Bible, pray a bit and whatever. And then like at the end of an hour, you kind of like start losing steam. And you know, by that hour and a half mark, I'm starting to twiddle my thumbs, look around two hours like, oh man, I'm really bored. What am I supposed to do here? It's kind of like I had this father who I was basically estranged from, who was my dad, but we had never really spent long chunks of time together. It just wasn't natural. It felt all of a sudden like really awkward. Like he was almost my stepdad or something. I'd have him for little bits of time here and there, but that's not really what a father-son relationship is, is all about. So anyways, it was very awkward at first, but by the end of the 21 days, I talked about the pictures and visions and things and like just started to get much more clear communication words and just to understand his heart really more than anything else and how much he loves me. And another thing is I feel a lot more comfortable talking about my faith now than before because I used to think Christianity was this divisive thing, like, oh, I'm Christian, you're not. But actually you realize when you understand the heart of the father, he talked to a lot of people who aren't Christians or who weren't Israelites or whatever. And I think the heart of God is like, he, we're all his children. And he loves all of us. Of course, he wants relationship with all of us. So if you don't have relationship, then yes, he wants to bring you into that. So that means coming to church. Yeah, all that's fantastic. But I don't think my job is to convert anybody. So I used to think, oh, if I'm trying to convert somebody, is it awkward if I talk about Jesus or not or whatever? But for me, I'm just trying to show God's love. And I think if they see that, they're attracted to God's love. And it's God's role to show them what they should do. All I need to do is, is just sacrifice myself, honor people, show them love, and then God does the rest. For a season, every day I take an Uber or grab every single Uber dri- or grab driver that I took. I would pray for them. Muslims, Buddhists, agnostics, atheists, there are only like two out of probably thousands, I think, that said, no, I don't want you to pray for me. When you just have that attitude of, like, hey, I just want to bless you. It's okay if you don't believe what I believe, but I feel like the God I believe in loves you. It doesn't matter what you believe. And so I just want to bless you with that. And who doesn't want to get blessed? So we got that deal done. From this point, <laughs> Ramanan, he'll sit there and every now and then I pull something crazy, like I need to fast. At one point I was like, hey, I need to go work one day a week from the church office or like crazy things. And I'm not doing that anymore, but at each point, he'd resist. And I'd say, like, God told me to do it eventually. And he'd be like, yeah, it's okay. Look, well, it seems to be working. So I guess I'm fine. Just go for it. <laughs> so this one, he doesn't really question too much if I say, God told me to do it.
0: <laughs> Are there any particular stories that come to mind where God really showed his hand in the work that you're doing?
1: Yeah. I mean, so many. I don't even know where to begin. But <laughs> the deal that fell apart, the first one, we had been working on that for a long time. And I'd become very friendly with the CEO. We were close. It wasn't just about, hey, what should we do with the company? It was more like, how should you propose to your girlfriend? And what is married life like? And really deeper issues. And we had signed a term sheet for a set of reasons. That the term sheet expired. It took us a little bit longer. Another investor came and snaked the deal out from under our legs. And actually, it was kind of two investors. And I was obviously very upset, right? This is like a transformational thing for us. I flew to Jakarta immediately.
0: This is Tokopedia. And-
1: William, the CEO, he said, I'm really, really sorry, but this thing happened. My hands are kind of tied and yada, yada. I felt like he could have fought a little bit harder for me. But my wife said some funny things in this sort of like aftermath of just reeling from this whole thing that happened. She said something like, you should go to Japan and go to the lead investor's house. I mean, this guy is like, this is the guy that everyone would know. So you go to his house and like sit on his doorstep and demand that he gives you the deal back when he walks into his house. I was like, that's freaking crazy. He's got security. There's no way I could do that. And then she said, you should go tell William, like, maybe God's using this for you to be, be a good testimony to William and, and everybody involved. And I was like, oh, that's crazy, man. What are you talking about? But then I, I went and I prayed about it. And I, I did feel like God's saying that. So at the end of this whole episode of several days of back and forth and trying to fight for get the deal back and things, he sent me an email uh, and it said something to the effect of like, I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of it, he said, and I hope that we can be friends again someday. I hope you can forgive me and we can be friends again someday. And the verse that I got was turn the other cheek. And I felt like I had just been slapped in the face, but to be a good testimony is like when you get slapped in the face, then you should actually turn the other cheek. So I replied to this email and I said, William, I just want you to know this is the hardest thing I've ever been through in my life because yes, there was that moment when I, and I actually told William about this when I went and slept on couches, my friend's couch and I ate pasta twice a day. Cause I couldn't even afford three square meals. But back, I sold my car, I got rid of my apartment, but Back then, I didn't have a wife and kids, and I have a little bit more buffer now, but I have wife and kids, and I actually feel way more pressure now than I did back then. So it's the hardest thing I've ever been through. But I want you to know also that I've been through some really hard times, and I've gotten through them because of my faith. And I think my faith is going to carry me through this one too. And I also want to let you know that in my faith, it's really important that we care for people, not for what they can do for you. When you care for someone, you should care for them for their own sake. So I want you to know that I do care for you for your own sake. And even if You can't do anything for me or this happened. I want you to know that I want the best for you. I'm here to support you. You are my friend and just let me know whatever I can do to help you in your journey, I'm there for you. And he was blown away by that. We weren't the only ones who were involved in this consortium that got blown away. So it's sort of like pushed aside. Some of them were actually very, very big influential investors. (laughs) Some of them were saying things like, do you know who I am? Like, you're never going to do business in Indonesia again. Like these families that I know, and I know the president, blah, 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 all this, all this stuff. So there's like the juxtaposition of the two reactions was quite interesting for William. Subsequently, we actually stayed very close through through that. And about nine months later, we explored various other ways that I could be engaged with the company, join the company, maybe be advisor, whatever, all these things. But anyways, nine months later, they were thinking about raising some more money. So he came to me first. I ended up bringing a couple of families into the deal. So the deal ended up being not 18 times larger, but 110 times larger than anything that we had ever done before. So you can always say, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Like you don't know how it would have turned out if it was earlier, it would have been a higher multiple, all these sorts of things. But I think that's one that is very clear that just sort of, following the word and also I guess what God had told me at the time it led to a a good outcome I'm still a board of that company the last I think is an eight billion dollar company it's very public now there's listed in the media that they're going to be IPOing soon for potentially with a merger with Gojek up to 40 billion dollars all these things so it's been an interesting journey to say the least
0: you mentioned bringing families on board at least in Asia LPs tend to be families they are those few people who are involved in many many industries and I imagine because they're your LPs, you would tend to source for deals that are working in the spaces they are in. So how do you think of where to go in? Because I think you also have this four hours of behavior change as well. So you have a very unusual way of looking at deal flow.
1: Yeah, I think on a deal by deal basis, that is true. In Asia, it's very different than it is in the West. So in the West, there's more like transactional trust saying if I bought this product from you, I trust you because it means you're good at this thing. So I'm going to trust you to do this thing. That's why companies tend to be much more focused on a product. But in the East, it's more like, I trust you because of you, because of you, the person. And so I think that's why conglomerates are formed over here, much more so historically than things in the West, the concerns in the West. They're very diversified across industry. Originally, we sort of like sourced based on, okay, what industries are uh, our families in? From there, we would be able to pick out opportunities. Sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Like we've looked at a, a squazillion you know, real estate deals, because every big family in Asia, they make money in something and then they go invest in real estate. So we knew that if there was a good real estate company, a real estate tech company to invest in, that we'd have gobs of people to introduce them to. But it's been hard to find the right one that had the, the right traction. The adoption seems to be pretty slow. But I think one that, another sort of case study, the one that we ended up getting done during the fast that I mentioned earlier, is this company called Dialpad. It's a company that needed telco relationships. So, you know, we found our way to the company. The entrepreneur had sold two companies, one to Yahoo became Yahoo voice. Another one to Google became Google voice. This is third voice company. So really just like a different, much more seasoned caliber of of team and things. And Rich Miner led the series A from Google ventures. He's the co-founder of Android. Mark Andreessen sits on the board there from Andreessen Horowitz. So here I am and fasting to try and win this deal amongst these giants of the industry. Craig actually didn't even want to talk at first. He's like, yeah, I just raised money from these guys. And I'm not talking to VCs right now, but can I call you back later? Bring you back when I'm ready to raise more money. And I said, oh, maybe we can just be helpful. So happy to just have a conversation about that first. And we got on the phone and became clear he needed telco partnerships. We ended up introducing him to a bunch of families that own telcos. And that kind of led to us building some goodwill. And then this thing went live in January during the fast. So then we ended up leading the Series C and it's been a, a crazy journey since then. Yeah, there's an iconic letter D, just raised a $100 million Series E, 125 and some interesting plans for the company ahead.
0: I understand you recently invested in Living Food last year, December, and it's the first Indian company, second in the food sector. And there's also three dots before that where you even did a video to talk about food base and what they were doing. So it's so fascinating just to see The kind of things that happen in Southeast Asia. And I wonder if you could share a bit about your interest in that area and why food and climate change is
1: now so closely interlinked. Yeah, let me reverse a little bit and get into that. So when you invest in companies like Dialpad, Dialpad is a communications platform and they have a product like Zoom as video conferencing. They have a product that replaces your desk phone. So when somebody calls your office phone, it'll call your mobile and all the different endpoints that you have. Their tagline is work is not a place you go. It's a thing that you do. And they've had this tagline since like 20, I don't know, 16 or 17 or something. So you can imagine in COVID, what's been the single product that did most for the environment during the period of COVID is probably Zoom because it virtualized travel. So all of a sudden like emissions go down like crazy because people can zoom. And so what we realized is that in the course of investing in companies and sectors like Dialpad is in, that, Hey, a lot of these companies are actually related to some of the sectors that our LPs have interest in. So yes, we can bring them into deals and they're riding on the tailwinds of globalization. They're in the U S and they want to come over here. These partnerships with these families and sometimes governments is really helpful for them. They also help solve some of the biggest problems caused by globalization, like climate change. And so we just double-clicked on that. And it was really my partner who led the charge on that. He wrote a a very lengthy set of thesis papers around this investment thesis of uh, behavior change specifically to fight the climate crisis. A lot of people think of climate change as like solar panels and wind farms and very capital-intensive hardware. So that's not us. It's all software, internet, things that we've always did before. But our lens on it is, hey, we're helping save the climate through behavior change. As we double-clicked on that, it helped us to surface some opportunities. And so when we go to these companies, we can say, hey, we'll, we'll get you to Asia. If you, We'll do all the things that VCs do, help you with recruiting and strategy and all that stuff. But we can also help in a differentiated way with these partnerships in cross-border expansion. But oh, by the way, we've written hundreds of pages and we made these videos about specifically what you're doing. And I'll give, you, I'll give you one example. So our most recent investment is a company called Joro. And it's an app you can download. I would recommend it for all you guys. So you can app, you download it, you answer a few questions, you connect your credit card data through Plaid. From there, it'll tell you what your carbon footprint is. And from there, it will nudge you with certain suggestions and social challenges to help you decrease your carbon footprint over time. Now, Sequoia, Brian Schreier, I think he's first 20 in Dropbox, and he's on the board of Qualtrics and a great, great investor, led the pre-seed for that company. And then it came time to lead the seed. And he said, I'm fine with great angels, but I don't really want another VC firm in this deal. Your Sequoia and your Brian Trier. So she got uh, Sanchali, the CEOs. So it's, it's awesome, force of nature. But she got the founders of Uber, Fitbit, Headspace, a bunch of others to come and participate. Like really great angels. And then she went back to Brian and she said, "Hey, there's this one firm that I need to have in there." And Brian was like, "Who's that?" And she said, "They're called Amasia." Obviously, I wasn't there, but I can just imagine Brian Trier being like, "Who the heck is Amasia? Why do I need to let them into this deal?" And then she's like, "Here's a few hundred pages that they've written about behavior change to fight the climate crisis. That's exactly what we do. I mean, there's no other VC in the world that's thought as deeply about this." And so Brian took a look exactly. Yeah, absolutely. We we need to let these guys in. So we ended up being the only other VC in this round. So we could have done Joro before, but I think now we wouldn't have won it. Right? There would have been no reason to let us into that deal. But now with this thesis, it's something that helps us to get into really interesting opportunities because there aren't many sort of like VC firms that focus on sustainability. So quickly becoming kind of the go-to guys uh, in this space. Some of them are very obvious. Like Jorah is very obvious. It's a climate change investment. I'd say some are um, a little bit more in the middle. So for instance, food is a trillion dollar industry and we waste a third to half of all the food that's produced for us to eat. All the inputs that go into the fertilizers, the fact that when you go throw it in the dump, it produces methane, which is 84 times more pollutant than, than carbon dioxide. It's just so, so bad. So Tree Dots, it's a company that takes that food waste because a lot of times this food is perfectly good, but it's just like the chicken is a little bit too big or too small. So you can't sell it into the, the, the grocery store, but you can sell it into F&B because it's it's totally fine. You just cut it and plate it make it look nice anyway. So it doesn't matter if it's a little bit too big or if it has a broken bone or whatever. It's growing very quickly. They've been incredibly capital efficient. All the metrics are there to make it like a good VC investment, but actually it has a very clear climate change angle probably not quite as clear in terms of as joro is like it's slapped on there it's like this is all about climate this is like kind of in the middle living food i'd say is also kind of in the middle the idea there is they give you insanely fresh better than organic products that are produced like down the street sort of thing and so you get microgreens they're grown in bangalore and then you order and it comes in a carton thing it still has the dirt in it and it's still growing it's good for a week on your countertop. And when you're ready, you just snip it and you put it right into your salad. So it's as fresh as it can possibly be. This goes by the call it living food, but kombucha that's made in your neighborhood, sourdough bread, which is like within a few few hours of it being baked, it's on your doorstep and all the probiotics, which decay very quickly, they're there for you to consume right away. And because of that, especially in places like India, most of the food is produced, it's packaged, it's got a bunch of chemicals in it, lots of sugar, it's made somewhere around the other side of the planet, they spend lots of money, it's at Scale, so it's cheaper in a way, but they spend lots of money and energy, like shipping that stuff around the world. And it's really bad for the environment. So Living Food is not just better for you as a person, but also much better for the planet. When you go to Living Food's website, you don't necessarily think, oh, this is a climate change investment. You just think, oh my goodness. Actually, livingfood.co, you should check it out if you want to get hungry. Man, these pictures are really good. We have a social commerce company in Indonesia, for instance, kind of like the Pinduoduo of, of Indonesia. You definitely wouldn't think of that as a climate investment, but they cut out, optimize the supply chain. So a lot more carbon used uh, to get goods to where they need to go. So that's our lens on the whole sustainability angle and a little bit of our journey there. The thinking used to be that if you wanted to make an impact, you had to sacrifice returns. So it's kind of like, oh, if you're an impact fund, I guess you make less money. But I think there's an increasing body of evidence that if you do it right, you can actually enhance returns. And I think increasingly, you're going to need to do it to enhance returns. A lot of Investors like BlackRock and Goldman, a bunch of these folks have said like, we're going to be shifting money and paying a lot more attention to this ESG stuff. So I think you really need to have a future, have a story and have a strategy for that.
0: The creator passion economy is something that is really proving to be sustainable as well. Like Skillshare is a company that is really proving your third are replacing bricks with bytes. And Mm. as I understand, you came across Skillshare because of your journey into vlogging. So can you share with us how that even began?
1: I mean, it's ed tech which means it's remote learning. It used to be, you have to go someplace to learn and now you can do it online. So that helps with the carbon footprint bin, just like Dialpad and Zoom do. It is also empowering micro entrepreneurs. We call it a pro segment. because so a lot of these people are freelancers and and there's just the gig economy. I mean, the economy is structurally shifting. In our parents' generation, they've worked for one company. Now folks around my age, they work for a handful of companies. And a lot of these millennials are just like, they don't even work for a company. They Airbnb host a little bit. They do some Uber here and there, whatever. Some freelance design. And so it's just empowering that whole trend. But yeah, it was instrumental in my vlogging journey. I didn't come into it because of vlogging, but I started using the platform a lot more because of my vlogging. Originally, I felt God just tell me like, hey, just start making videos. You heard a voice? Yeah. Not audible this time, but just in my prayer, like it's just a sense, you know, it was like, hey, make videos. And in a way, it kind of made sense because in my work, I see the future of media and obviously everything's moving towards video. But in so many ways, it made no sense because I don't have any time. I've never made a video in my life. I didn't know anything about video editing and all the stuff around editing. It's not just the technical things, but the storytelling and the, all that stuff. I had no idea any of it. I tried a bunch of things kind of in my own strength in a way and it didn't really work. And many years later, I heard it again and it was like, okay, now's the time. So I really just went all in on it. And for a year, so, so I went on Skillshare. I took a bunch of editing classes There's this other great thing called Jump Cut. It's a YC company and Jump Cut teaches you more. What are the characteristics of viral content? How do you get people to watch and share your content? And so... I mean, I poured my heart and soul hours and hours, heart and soul into this thing. And I managed to get one video a month, which is not that much. I mean, if you want to be an influencer, quote, unquote, you got to be putting stuff out much more frequently than that. But for about a year, I really struggled and I got out one video and people like liked it. they were my friends though. Each video kind of averaged like a couple hundred views. So I don't think they were really sharing it. I wanted to give up many times, but each time I just go back, it's like, did you hear God's voice? And yeah, it's, well. It's kind of easy when you hear God's voice because you just know you need to do it. And so I'd, I'd get back on the horse and start riding again. And there was really a step change in this whole thing when I met Nusir from Nas Daily, And we had dinner. It was me and him and his girlfriend and my wife. And they were like, hey, so how are, you guys, how are you guys doing? What's been going on? And we had just come back from this marriage conference, actually, where there was crazy. It was like the most transformational experience that I've ever been through crazy transformational, crazy spiritual. And Nas and Alin, they don't share the same faith as us. But I think we sat there and just talked for three hours about this thing. And then we got very vulnerable because there's some very, very vulnerable stuff that, that happened to us. and And they were just kind of shocked that we were getting so vulnerable and we were shocked too, we are like, what the heck is happening? But for some reason we were just sharing all this stuff and then they got very vulnerable. They shared a bunch of things about their upbringing their relationship and stuff like that. And so anyways, we, we just really hit it off. On the way home, we were driving them home and Nas said to me, he's like, hey, so why were we introduced? We had a mutual friend who like was gonna introduce us. And so I said, I think Dominique just wanted to get us together because I make videos. And I'm one of the few investors who make videos. He's like, what? You make videos? No way. You spent this whole dinner, like not talking about videos. Like this, this is what I do. I'll lean too. Like, so, so like, yeah, I know that's, that's why I think. So, so he said, you got to come by the office. So he came by the office and next week. And he spent like 90 minutes with me just going through my whole strategy and everything that I was thinking through. He fixed me. I was really doing the wrong thing in many ways. He was so gracious, so generous with his time, invested so much with me. I I joke around. I tell him I I owe him my firstborn son because he was so generous and it's really transformational. You know, 200 views. The first video that he helped me with got 170,000 views and 400,000 and 600,000 top performing videos, I think about a million views now at this point. It's not about views, really. It's about the engagement, the likes and the comments and things but those numbers are also very very strong on the engagement side of things you mentioned the videos that i've done for like tree dots and things we have this strategy i guess at our firm where ramanan he writes long very in-depth pieces and a very small but influential group read his blog but i
0: appreciate the fact that he will write a specific blog for each company you invest it because it really gives me an understanding of where you're coming from
1: yes and a thesis and everything so he he attacks that side of things and then i kind of make some of that digestible or take a little piece of it and make it into a three-minute video that's more mass you can't get that deep in a three-minute video but i try and make it such that it's a little more shareable and just easy to digest don't use big words and things
0: i imagine people would be very curious what was it that nas was advising you that allowed you to experience that growth because i think with that first video beware of black christmas you bounce that script between yourself five times So he really had a lot of hand in making sure that
1: it was as good as could be. Again, he was so generous. So the original tips, some of them were very tactical, like Facebook used to optimize for one minute videos, but now they're optimizing for three minute videos because they want longer form content. So make your videos three minutes. YouTube is more like eight to 10 minutes sort of thing. So you got to make them three minutes, make them shorter. But I was doing like one minute videos on Facebook and 10 minute videos on YouTube. He's like, no, do three minute on Facebook. Facebook's easier to share because there's no share button really. And I think that now there is on YouTube, but there wasn't back then. You can share with your friends. people will check it out. YouTube's very different. So I got off YouTube. Some of it is stuff like in Jump Cut, they share the three characteristics of viral content is you need to tell a story. And a story involves a character trying to overcome something like a, an obstacle. So that's story. It needs to be something that challenges assumptions. So if you say the sky is blue. And this is why nobody's going to care. But if you say the sky is actually green, but you thought it was blue, and here's why, then people are going, like, to oh, interesting, that's worth sharing. And then the third thing has to solicit an emotional reaction. So if it makes you laugh or inspires you, or makes you cry or whatever, or makes you angry, a lot of the stuff gets shared very quickly these days. That's why fake news is really successful at getting viral, even though it's fake. The thing that Nas really honed in on me was that if you want content, that's going to go sort of mass, he said, you need to forget everything you've learned about the English language. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, Most people in the world don't speak English like you and me. Most people in the world don't speak English at all, but the ones who do, and they might understand some broken English or they can read some subtitles, they definitely don't speak it like you and me. You have to forget everything you learn and just speak much more simply. Let me give you an example. I made a video in Korea and I was talking about the Korean alphabet, which is a very famous story in Korea. There's a king who just, we used to use the Chinese alphabet, but then he's like, hey, this doesn't make sense. Let's make it phonetic. So he invented this alphabet. And so most videos that make that story, they'll say there was a king. His name was King Sejong. He invented the alphabet, and this is how he did it. This is still Nas talking about, it. and he's like, for my video in the Nas Daily video, I just say there was a king in Korea, and he made the alphabet, and this is how he did it. Because Sejong doesn't matter, man. If you know him, you know him already. If you don't know him, it's going to go one ear, in one ear, out the other ear. And if you have a few words like that, people just shut off your video because you have so many choices for content these days. So just make it super simple. Like they all need to be words that you understand. He's got this thing called NASA Academy. So if anyone's interested in becoming a creator, like go there. It's an amazing platform. It was offline first, but now they have it online. He talks about, it. I forget the exact thing, but it's like, if a 12 year old in Vietnam cannot understand your video, then it's too complicated. So you need to make it super, super simple. That's how it gets shared. So. That's the thing that he drove in to me more than anything else. I think that was quite different.
0: I love that you channeled Nasir so well. It sounded just like him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first videos, my wife kept telling me, like, stop talking like Nas. And I'm like, when you learn a craft, when you learn the violin, you try and play like your teacher, right? When you learn painting, you have to paint like Leonardo, whatever. And so when I was learning vlogging, I I wanted to literally be like Nas. I was doing everything he was telling me to do and like emulating him. Completely, And then like with any craft, after you understand how to copy the master, then you can start to develop your own style. Same thing for investing. Like I literally just tried to download Ramanan's brain at the beginning, like understand why he made decisions the way he did. The faster you do that, the faster you can develop your own intuition on why your opinion might differ or how you do it differently. So I I learned to imitate Nas actually pretty, (laughs) pretty well.
0: And what was the process like involving your children as well in your videos? I noticed that Elaine appeared as well once as the one who did not put (laughs) her self-interest before Company. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, Elaine is, she's my biggest supporter, but I got to say she had a lot of questions about the vlog at various points in time. She has this love-hate relationship with social media in general. I think I'd love to feature her more, but she's always just a little bit cautious about featuring, but then video, you got to make sure makeup's done and all these things. So with the kids, it's, it's a lot more fluid, I guess, because as long as I pay them with screen time, they're willing to do whatever I ask them. And it's been awesome because Anyone with kids would know, like, it's always such a struggle to balance work. When you're doing work, you feel guilty because you're not hanging out with kids. When you feel like hanging out with kids, you feel guilty if you're not working. And so for me, this has been this really interesting intersection of the Venn diagram where I'm making a video about Tree Dots or Joro or whatever. And we actually get to sit there and hang out together and make a video that they're involved in. So I get to hang out with them, with my family and my kids while I'm doing something good for my work. And I feel like that's just such a tremendous blessing. I didn't really think to get them involved at first, but they're just a lot cuter, a lot more compelling than I am.
0: <laughs> and have you seen the vlogging have an impact on the kind of work that you do? I mean, like it seems as though VCs are getting more and more involved in content creation. There's like Joma Tech, there's Justin Khan, Gary Tan, there's Harry Stebbings. They're really making a name for themselves by putting out their own content.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think it is an important differentiator. Not everyone needs to do it. I know some investors who are like amazing investors. I don't know if it's Brian, who I mentioned earlier, or maybe Ryan uh, Sweeney from Excel. I don't know. One of these guys that is sits on a board with us in one of our companies. I remember reading a bio saying, you won't see me at a conference. You won't see me tweeting. You won't see me blogging. I want to spend all my time helping my companies directly, not building a brand for myself. I forget who it is, but it's like a, somebody who's a very, very good investor. and Anybody would take their money. But I think that it's certainly an interesting way to, to differentiate yourself. It works for Harry, right? Harry Stebbings, like he came out of nowhere and he yeah. just started
0: He's so young.
1: <laughs> he's so young. He's such a genuine, nice guy. And that's why I think it works with him. But he's so young and he knew nothing about the industry. And now, I mean, he gets crazy deal for a man. And you know, he's got a he's got a firm they set up and everything in this business. When you start out in something, you have to figure out okay, hey, what is everyone doing? And then how can I emulate them? But the more you want to be in the top one percent, the The more what you do has to look totally different from what everyone else is doing. Because if you just try and copy, then you're always going to try and catch up and you revert to the mean, because the mean, the best practice is just going to get you to the mean. So I remember when we started in the business until like 2009, I think everyone saw VC as like public equity, or it's kind of like, let's pick the right horse, you bet on them and they do well. And that's great. But the thing is, it's a small space. So there's a lot more money available than there are interesting deals. And so there's a firm, Andreessen Horowitz, I mentioned Mark earlier, they kind of realized, hey, we need to disrupt this. And we need to actually be much more proactive about how we add value. So when I started in the industry, I was thinking, okay, there's actually a Harvard Business Review case study on Andreessen Horowitz. So I actually read the review and I was like, okay, we need to be like them. I tried to do all these things that they were doing. And I realized like, you're never going to beat Andreessen at Andreessen's game. There's just no way. There's so
0: many people uh, as well, like 90
1: people. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, yeah, I think it's 100 something now. You're never going to beat them at their game. But what we realized with Outpad, as I mentioned, is like Mark Andreessen's not going to pick up the phone and call a Malaysian telco for Craig. I mean, he has a ton of value, but I figure out how to add value in a very different way. There's this way to add value around this cross border stuff. There's a way to add value around the, some of the climate stuff where we're very sort of in depth and thinking about that. And then vlogging, yeah, at the time, especially now, Gary Tan is doing some videos, which I think are great. But yeah, at the time there was nobody doing videos in venture and for Joro, we actually wrote a song. I never in a million years thought that music would be a source of value add for a portfolio company and a VC firm. I'm pretty sure that I was the only VC in the world maybe who was making videos like vlogging as a source of value add. And When you go to a company you say, hey, I'll get you half a million views, exposure for your, your company. Is that interesting? Yeah, they, they love it. I was making a video about Joro and they're very thoughtful about their language on their website and their values and all these things. So I was just writing the the script. And a, I think two words happened to rhyme. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I, I just started writing, writing more. And then next thing you know, I had a song. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is kind of cool. So I asked a K-pop friend, a producer friend of mine to help me with it a little bit. And I had sanjali listen to it. And she's like, this is amazing. She loves it now. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple iTunes and things. And she shares it with all her friends. I tried to blog. I mean, Mark and Fred Wilson and Brad Feld, all these guys that I met and hugely admire just try to do the things they do. But I realized like, it doesn't mean you shouldn't blog, but you, you can't copy other people. So I'm just increasingly getting comfortable in my own skin, doing things that are very different and realizing like that's OK. In fact, you kind of need to do that if you want to get better and better at, at this game, at any game, really.
0: And another thing that everyone seems to be jumping onto is. Clubhouse, which both you and your wife have jumped into, and there are so many startup founders and VCs as well on it. So what is your take on it after being on that platform?
1: Yeah, Clubhouse is great. I think I'm very wary of social media in general. Again, it's that like consumption versus investment mindset. I'm much more an investment person. And so I think like defer pleasure. When I find myself swiping on something for a long time or talking on something or listening to something for a long time, I'm just very careful about it because I'm very goal oriented still. And so I got a, uh, an invite, I think like last year or something like that. And I just put it away. I was like, oh, social media, I can't deal with this, whatever. And then uh, my wife got on it a little bit after that. And she's like, hey, this is your thing. You would really thrive here. You really enjoy it. I guess I talk a lot. (laughs) I like to talk. And she's like, it's a startup founders and VCs. It's the platform for that. And you bring a unique perspective with all the stuff that you're doing. And so you should totally be on this. You spend more time. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I went on for one day, just like checking it out in the midst of the day and everything. And that night I ended up staying, we're modding a room and ended up I was up till 3 a.m. And I was like, oh my goodness, it's amazing. Like people are asking me all these questions and I'm able to help them. And I'm also learning so much. Where else are you gonna hear like a real-time conversation of Malcolm Gladwell and Adam Grant talking about their latest book and how things have changed since the prior book. And it's like an amazing place to learn and to share. But yeah, it was also quite wary, like any social media thing. And my wife is very active she watches Netflix. And so it's kind of replaced Netflix for her on certain nights and things. And I don't really watch much Netflix. So for me, it has to eat into other stuff like my sleep or time with the kids or work or time with God. And so I haven't spent as much time as her. I said, I'll always mod a room with you. You just got to give me notice. You can't be like, Hey, let's go in right now. Just give me some notice. I can plan around it, but we love it. And I think there's So many different applications, not just work-wise, obviously a ton, like ton of VC startup stuff happening there, but faith-wise as well. Like we've started some rooms. We're very prayerful about it because you don't want to turn people off. I guess we've been on there and met people randomly who are actually from the same church as us, but in Beijing. And like, we had a a faith at work room that we set up. We ended up like praying for each other and people were crying because they're so impacted by it. And just people from Kansas and stuff like we never would have met otherwise. And this is an area that I'm actually very passionate about, like God using technology to bring people closer into relationship with each other and, and to him. And so I feel like there's some really ap- interesting applications in that realm as well in Clubhouse. So big fan, a uh, little bit wary just because of my character, but I think really excited about it overall.
0: I read that this year, your church said that it's all about creating space for God. And one of the key verses is, in my father's house, there are many rooms. And I wonder how you are creating space this year and what your plans are.
1: Very good question. Well, going into the year, I actually had a lot of, of stuff on my plate. I was actually planning on auditing a seminary class this year and some church responsibilities as well. Like I was running the finance committee at our church. So step back from that. Actually yesterday was the handover for the weekly operational responsibilities. So work-wise, not working less, but just trying to be much more focused on doing less things better A lot of this actually coincided with my father got cancer late last year, and it was a very difficult thing to go through. A lot of positives to it. I think God definitely has a plan. Absolutely have faith that there's supernatural healing in store for him. I'm actually going to preach about it on March 7th here. but. Yeah, there were definitely like ups and downs. It just puts things in perspective. Like who cares about getting a deal done when your dad has got cancer? The doctors say he's got a 10 to 30% chance of living. And it coincided with my pastor kind of getting this download from God about yeah, that the theme for this year is to create space. And so yeah, I realized like needed to just create as much space as possible. And yeah, those are some of the things that we managed to do. But still more to come, but those are some initial steps.
0: Well, thank you, John, so much for your time. I normally love to end of my interviews with these questions. Do you feel like you've found your why?
1: For sure. It's very, very, very obvious to me. I've tried every pleasure of the world. And I know that one day in his courts, in the presence of God, is better than a thousand years elsewhere. And so my mission in life is to experience extreme intimacy with God, firstly, and secondly, enable others in experiencing extreme intimacy with God because I feel like it's very selfish for me to without sharing it and just experience it myself. And that very much aligns with what Jesus said, which is like what are the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second is love others as you love yourself. So to me it's very obvious. Like everything points to that.
0: And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind?
1: I think this might be the first time I've ever actually said this in public. <laughs> I feel like God is doing something in the realm of technology. If you look historically, in general, there's always this human resistance to change. And I feel like God has always been in change, especially technological change. I mean, I'll give you an example. So Billy Graham, widely known as the kind of most successful, quote unquote, evangelist in the history of the world. Well, I mean, besides Jesus, maybe. He was an advisor to every single U.S. president from, I forget, like Nixon or Kennedy, I can't remember, like straight through till he passed away. Places where it was like insane, Deng Xiaoping, communist China. Kim Jong-il, he went to go meet and share with. If you think about what he did and why he did it, at the time, it was very clear to him that he needed to use every tool at his disposal to accomplish this very big mission that he had. And a lot of pastors at the time, they were saying like, the new thing was TV and radio. Like, oh, TV, Hollywood, that's evil. That's the devil's area. You can't go there he's like, no, I mean, there's the lords and everything in it. Does TV not belong to God? We got to use TV. We got to use radio. So he went out there, used newspapers, used everything, and then used that to promote his crusades. And that's how he was able to have the impact that he had. If you think about technological advancement, there's been the printing press that helped to get much, much more widespread adoption of all sorts of literature. And so as we project forward, there's like crazy stuff going to happen There's going to be like VR, I don't know, churches, and there's going to be things like Clubhouse where people from around the world can get together and pray for each other and have an impact. And things like Uber have already enabled me to pray for thousands of Uber drivers. So I think that there's something here that God is doing, and I'd love to just be a part of that. And I feel like there are 8 billion people in the world today. A couple billion people say that they're Christians in some way, shape, or form. God loves everybody. It's not an in out, sort of in-group, out-group sort of thing, but I think he wants deep personal relationship with everybody and I think that means that 2 billion people got to get closer to him. I think that more people got to just like know about him too. And so I'd love to get a billion more people into the kingdom. It's crazy to think about, but I'm going to die trying to set up a foundation and really build it like a company and start iterating on some media and tech products that will enable us all to experience and enable others in experiencing extreme intimacy with God. And actually the money's not really a problem. I think it's much more about getting the people It's the same thing for startups too. I think money is the air, but you got to have the body to breathe. I'm slowly starting to recruit people who want to be on that journey. So if any of your listeners are interested in that, please tell them to DM me.
0: And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person?
1: Well, I guess it depends on how you define success. I know that I used to define success in a certain way, and I thought that was really important. But I have a lot of people in my life who are very successful by the standards of the world who are miserable. And we know this, right? You go to places that have large swaths of populations who are not successful by the ways of the world, but they're very happy. I've realized that the worldly definition of success doesn't really matter. I think understanding what your purpose is, having meaning around your life, and then being able to go and execute against that is what success is.
0: And where can people go to connect with you and support everything that you're doing?
1: Well, my vlog is at uh, facebook.com backslash Co. I have a website, johnkim.co, J-O-H-N-K-A-M dot So I post a daily devotional there, weekdays. I take break on weekends. I still have QT, by the way. I just, I'm not posting it. <laughs> and yeah, please subscribe there. I'm very open. You know, you can ping me an email anytime. I'm on LinkedIn. You can send me a DM there, Instagram, whatever. I'm not as active on some of these, but I have a Twitter account. I have an Instagram account. I'm not super active there, but I check my messages from time to time.
0: And that was the end of episode 38. The transcripts and links to everything we've just talked about, can be found at so this sothisismywhy.com forward slash 38, including a link to sign up for a weekly newsletter that I run, where I list all the fascinating and inspiring things I've read and learned over the course of the week. And stay tuned for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting a former serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist, 15-time book author, podcaster, and chief evangelist of Apple and Canva on his journey to becoming one of the most known brand evangelists in the world, as well as what it was like working with the late Steve Jobs. See you next Sunday.